Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Sounding Board. Today we're going to mark the 40th anniversary of the death of Elvis Presley by looking back on the career and life of the man that pretty much invented pop music as we know it. David Cox is with me, and it's just the two of us, evidence that our participation rate in the podcast is declining at an even more alarming one than our listenership. <laughs> Hello to David. Hi, Rob. Yeah. Um, before we get stuck into our tribute to the King, and later an appraisal of the new LP from Arcade Fire... Any music news items that caught your eye this week? Well, I've just got one, uh, which concerns Martin Shkreli, who's the multi-millionaire big pharma magnate who bought the only copy of Wu-Tang Clan's Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. So this is this uh, uh, incredible box set that was sold in kind of Italian mahogany, encased in silver, with a gold leaf certificate of ownership that came with its own custom-made $55,000 pair of speakers that was sold by auction for over $2 million. So it's, oh the most ex- it's the most expensive album ever sold. But it was under the proviso that it would never be performed publicly until the year 2103. Okay, right. So that's some bit of background. <laughs> Shkreli said that if Trump was elected president, he would live-stream the album against the Wu-Tang's wishes... And around the same time, uh, he was arrested by the FBI for multiple counts of securities fraud. He has since been found guilty uh, and has been jailed, which has probably saved his life because the Wu-Tang are incredibly unhappy with him about live streaming it during a recent YouTube clip, which has since been taken down. It is worth saying that beyond this beef, at least one of the potential jurors excused themselves from being on the jury because, and I quote, he had disrespected the Wu-Tang Clan. And therefore, they, he could not give an honest appraisal of his guilt or innocence. And so did you catch the live stream? No, and I wouldn't. No, no. I mean, I, I think it's an amazing... I mean, I don't know. It's amazing folly, which is the Wu-Tang Clan all over. Yeah. But anyway, the guy who owns that album is in jail, which is probably the safest place in the world for him to be. Extraordinary. And I'm going to follow up with a story that's a little bit like Taylor Swift one that we had on the podcast last month and it's actually that Bell and Sebastian bizarrely were on tour in North America and somehow contrived to leave a member of the band at a Walmart in North Dakota wearing his (laughs) pyjamas and apparently he was waiting there for four hours before they realised and it sounds like it might be a bit of a stunt. The Guardian article on it is is a little bit kind of weird on this. It doesn't really quite point out what the reality of the situation was. But uh, North Dakota, of all places, of course, Fargo territory. Yeah. So, so, yes, yeah. But read into that one what you will. Do we do we understand if they went shopping in their pyjamas? Uh, do we understand anything about Well, this? I was recently on a coastal walk in Dorset, and uh, the pair of pyjamas that I own could be seen being sported by a 15-year-old trendy youth yeah. walking along the coast. And my girlfriend said to me, Rob's Jimmy J's. And like, <laughs> so maybe I think sort of wearing pyjamas is the new thing. Um, clearly, we're too old to realise that. After this break, we'll be talking about another man who was inclined to wear one-piece gear, and that's Mr Elvis Presley. <laughs> And as promised, this week we are devoting the bulk of our show to Mr Elvis Presley, who died on the day we are recording this podcast, 40 years ago today. Elvis's death is one of my earliest cultural memories, just pipped by the Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II a few weeks before in 1977. As an eight-year-old, I wasn't that familiar with the man, but I soon would be, as the coverage at the time was truly blanket. 
Dave is a long-time fan, and our approach to tackling such a big topic is to take five key points in Elvis's life and to try and get a handle on their wider significance. I think we agreed it was impossible to just cover the whole thing, and all the music, of course. So to get this started, we're going to kick off with the birth of the man in January 1935, along with his background in Tupelo, Mississippi. David, some thoughts on early Elvis. So it's worth saying that he was born in East Tupelo. Oh, of and, course. And the, the thing about East Tupelo is that, that that was the very poor end. Yeah. So I think Peter Graunick, who wrote uh, uh, the kind of definitive two-volume biography of Elvis, called it Across the Tracks from Across the Tracks. It was a two-room shack. In the middle of the Depression, as you mentioned, it was 1935. The main thing I wanted to talk about in terms of Elvis's birth, and a kind of theme we'll kind of hopefully return to a couple of times during this podcast, are things that are, are majorly important about Elvis that people may not know or, or misunderstand. So the major thing about Elvis's birth is that he had an identical twin brother called Jesse Garron, who was born 35 minutes before him and sat stillborn on the kitchen table for 35 minutes as Elvis was born. Oh my word, I didn't know that part of the yeah. story. Yeah. So, so his mother, in Elvis's words, had been given the happiest moment of her life and the saddest moment of her life mm. at exactly the same time. And it was her opinion as well as Elvis's that God had given her that challenge, that test, and that Elvis, the kind of deal that had been struck from God was that Elvis got luck for two. Yeah. So he got all of Jesse's luck. This is something that really... Elvis as an only child during Depression era America enjoyed but, but laboured under as well. Like his, his relationship with his mother was incredibly intense as a result. Worth saying that at the age of three, Elvis's father went to jail for nine months yes, for so forging a cheque. And they went hungry during those nine months. There was basically no income. And so not only was Elvis at a very formative stage poor and hungry, but his mother was very badly affected by this too, and the, the marriage was never really the same, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky enough to have actually driven through Tupelo at one point oh, like, wow. a few years ago, and it's it's still a pretty down-a-hill yeah. poor place. You know, Mississippi, I think, is the poorest state in the US pretty much. So, you know, I think even today, if it's like that, then I think in the in the pre-war period, things would have been more strident still. Yeah. And you mentioned about East Tupelo, and I understand that Elvis, you know, as we mentioned, we're living in a black neighbourhood, which was very significant, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, they moved to North Green Street in Tupelo when Elvis was still a child, and that's where their neighbours were mostly black. And that's where Elvis sort of heard black radios, where he sat outside the black churches and heard gospel for the first time. I'd say that Elvis was a man of great appetites, and I'm sure we'll return to this later. He was omnivorous in terms of everything you could possibly mention food music women goodness knows karate clothes yeah. <laughs> whatever drugs of course yeah. yeah and so i think we should discuss it and it's appropriate to discuss it as early on as possible uh, probably the biggest criticism of elvis is that he somehow is he leads a vanguard in terms of appropriation of black culture yeah by white people yeah and I suppose that's that's just worth talking about. Like, what's your take? Well, is it a is it a an outrage or is it a positive thing? I mean, I'd be inclined to think that in popularising black music or music of black origin to a wider audience, a white audience, which at the time against a backcloth of segregation was incredibly important, is is actually a positive thing. I mean, I think he brought a lot of black artists to attention of a wider public. He broke down a few barriers, maybe not sort of in a rabble-rousing, conscious way, but 
I don't think, having read the Goralnik book, and that's all I've got to go on, that he was in any way a discriminatory person. I think he took people as they found them. And and I think, uh, you know, there's been so much great music that's resulted that he's influenced and he would sure be one of the first people to say that it all stems back to some of the influences that were brought to bear on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you agree? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think there were two, kind of two schools of thought here. The Chuck D school of thought. Yeah. Which Elvis was a racist, that he got rich off the back of black music without the black people. Yeah. But then there is another view, which is a sort of rising tide raises all boats, and that Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Fats Domino and B.B. King would have never been played on white radio without Elvis. No. Yeah. And those two things don't cancel each other out. That's why it's still going on as a debate, but definitely worth touching on. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think it... I would be inclined to agree with the latter opinion, as I've just said. And I think the Chuck D thing, I think there's an element of, you know, propaganda there and just using that as a as a, as a stick to beat someone with where I don't think there's necessarily a lot of reality in it. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether, you know, that would still be the opinion now. But I, I think very interesting anyway to debate that. That's actually something that I think maybe we could devote a whole podcast to sure. the interaction between black and white music and, you know, bands like the Rolling Stones and and others, of course, uh, are fulsomely in debt to that side of things. So I, th- I think it's fair to say the birth is a significant moment. Later on, Elvis, I'm not sure what age he moved to Memphis, but it was, it was, was in 12, his childhood think, 12. Yeah. yeah, so Memphis is, of course, the other iconic place that is part of the Elvis, sort of where he lived, etc. So we're going to move on now a few years, rather than sort of charting things completely chronologically, and we're going to look at, so 1956 which was a pivotal year and, and David what, what, why would you suggest that was the case yeah well 56 um, January 56 is when he released Heartbreak Hotel which is his first single after leaving Sun Studios and signing his million dollar contract with RCA Victor this, this big sort of this is a bit like Nirvana signing for Geffen sort of thing yeah. like leaving yeah. Sub Pop Heartbreak Hotel is notable for a number of reasons not least of which it was his first national and international hit his first singles were regional hits around Memphis um, but this this went in fact it was the biggest selling single of 1956 in the US it was his first million seller I mean it was it was humongous and actually I found out some interesting stuff about why the timing was right I kind of wanted to to talk to you about so actually it comes down to technology as ever and it was the transistor radio. Oh, really? So yeah. the transistor radio was made commercially available for the first time in October 1954. And up to the end of 1955, they'd shifted about 100,000 units. But by the end of 1958, they'd sold millions. The, the thing about the transistor radio was that there's some combination of early baby boomers and relative prosperity... And the idea that with a transistor radio, you didn't have to sit there in your front room and listen to the radio with your parents. You could go off and listen to it anywhere you wanted. Therefore, you you had something of your own for the very first time in America. And so the release of Heartbreak Hotel in early 19, January 1956 was absolutely perfect timing. The, the technology was there and now the culture was there with rock and roll. And I, th- I think that that is unignorable. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I hadn't really considered, but it's obviously significant because the other thing is, I think, about that year is that Elvis really exploded from being sort of pretty much a regional star. He he was a big hit in various 
gigs and and things around Memphis, and and then also the Louisiana Hayride, which mm-hmm. uh, took place in that state and very well known in the South. But I think '56 was really when he kind of spread out properly nationally and internationally, wasn't it? You know, yeah. so and everyone so. begged him not to release Heartbreak Hotel. Yeah, like it's well worth going back and listening to that song again. It is strange and morbid, um, and it wasn't. It's not rock and roll as you understand it. It's, it's a very down tempo depressing song about basically suicide yeah and yeah. everyone begged him don't don't release it Elvis and he insisted he insisted he insisted the first time he heard it he said hot dog play that again he listened to it 10 times in a row there's kind of interesting story behind the the song which is that there was a petty criminal called Alvin Krolik who handed himself into the police of a note saying I've walked a lonely street and the the songwriters saw that and then picked that up and said let's put this hotel at the end of that street and um, poor old Alvin Krolik, sadly, was later to hold up a liquor store and was shot dead by the, the owner. Right. And so kind of there's a kind of tragic, almost like a curse of the Heartbreak Hotel kind of surrounding the book, surrounding the song, sorry. But another thing that's interesting about the, the song is that it kind of recreates the trademark echo of the Sam Phillips Sun Studio course, recordings. Yeah. But they didn't know how to recreate it. And so Elvis actually remiked the room and opened up all the doors. So the echo you hear is a sound bouncing down the corridor because he didn't know how Sam Phillips did it in Sun. And I thought that's amazing. Yeah. It goes to show that Elvis produced himself a lot of the time. I mean, there were people kind of behind the the, the, the glass partition, but it was Elvis who was organising the musicians. Which gives the lie to the fact that a lot of people maybe sort of portray this myth that he was a manufactured act, really, and that you know, everything was all done by other people and he was just a pretty face that sung the songs. I mean, that really shows that he was involved in every aspect of the music. Pretty so, much, yeah. yeah. And also, this b- b- worth noting as well, though, that this is his only really major co-writing credit. Right, yeah. Uh, other than that, he took either songs that were written specifically for him or other people's songs for the rest of his career. Which I think we're going to return to a bit later on because I think that's interesting to see how cultural attitudes towards pop music have shifted towards the singer-songwriter over time and I think we'll probably touch on that. I think it harms his legacy in the yeah. eyes of some yeah. that he's not quite as legitimate for, for being a performer as opposed to a songwriter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really interesting. Just more widely, I mean, I think that the time period in... US history, obviously, the 50s was Brave New World, you're coming out of the wartime, you know, and austerity and all sorts of other things, the Great Depression before that, you know, the 50s, you know, you have images of sort of soda bars and yeah. and people cruising the strip, all the stuff that you get in kind of American graffiti, yeah, you know, yeah. the the, um, the George Lucas film, you know, I mean, and uh, Elvis is just, seems to me that he is completely indivisible from that mm-hmm. world. Is that fair, would you say? Maybe? Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I think we could get quite highfalutin about what Elvis says and represents about America in the 20th century, but I think you could probably organise a pretty good argument, a kind yeah. of rise and fall of the American century, certainly post-war. Yeah. I think he's absolutely central to that. I think that probably if you organised the five faces of the 20th century, I think Elvis would be one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... And I also wanted to touch on the influence at this stage was beginning to come in of uh, Elvis's manager, uh, Colonel Parker, um, possibly the most famous Bengali in history, I think, and uh, a man whose influence on Elvis is hotly debated to this day. Any thoughts on that? Well, firstly, to say that he was neither a colonel, nor was his name Tom Parker. So he was a guy from the Netherlands who is rumoured to have murdered someone on the day really? he left the mm. Netherlands, and that's mm. why he left. Yeah, and that's why he could never leave the country because mm. he was basically he was not 
a legitimate American citizen, and that's why Elvis never left the country apart from uh, on the touring duty, certainly uh, apart from three gigs in Canada. Right, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why even during Elvis's time in Hollywood, there was going to be a scene down in a bullfighting scene down in Mexico, and the Colonel completely killed that. He just said no way. Right, and Peter Garownik in the book. Uh, or uh, I've recently listened to a really good podcast which is on the Radio 4 Great Live series which David Trimble of all people is curating uh, which is well worth hunting out and we'll post a link up to it on Twitter and he Gronick in that interview which was part of that podcast actually said he felt Parker was a genius you know just because of his ability to kind of you know just know how to to maximise Elvis's potential would you go along with that? No, but then Peter Gronick knows more than me. Yeah, I don't think Colonel Parker made many choices that didn't completely just suit him as opposed to Elvis. Certainly yeah. not Elvis as an artist. That said, he I think Gronick calls him a marketing genius, which I think is a qualification. Yes, yeah. One thing he did was he created a bunch of I Love Elvis badges. And with classic Tom Parker flourish, he created an equal number of I Hate Elvis badges. And that is just him in a nutshell... Coming or going, he's going to get your money. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit later, and I'm sort of possibly moving a little bit away from the structure here, but another really interesting thing that, that I've heard was that some people were looking to get Elvis involved in an adaptation of a Nelson Algren novel, which would have been a slightly edgier, less predictable thing, and it was going to be a film. We were not really going to talk about the films much today, but this is going to be a film thing, and, and apparently it was like really ruthlessly closed out by Parker and his entourage and said, no way. We manage Elvis's image. We're not. That isn't him. We want him to be kind of a mainstream figure, and I thought that was pretty fascinating as well. Yeah, I mean, that, there was one notable moment in the whole of Elvis's <laughs> career where they went counter to the Colonel and the Memphis Mafia, and that was a '68 comeback special, which we'll touch on. Yes, yeah. Well, it's going to be a central part of things. So, so moving on a few years, one of the, the major events in Elvis's life was when he was sort of called up for the army. And this was in 1958. And this was pre-Vietnam. But it was during the period when a lot of Americans and young Americans were called up to sort of serve in Germany in particular. And that's where he ended up going after some time at, at, at Fort Hood. And this was obviously like something that was a massive sort of psychological decision for him. And, and a real watershed moment. Any thoughts? Well, Gronick, we keep returning to him, but his, you know, his masterful two-volume biography is pretty much the touchstone in all serious analysis of Elvis. Splits the first book, which is basically full of hope, the making of Elvis Presley, at this point when he goes into the army, and the second part, which is his decline, is everything afterwards. And so, in most people's opinion, this is a this is a key moment in basically the triggering of Elvis's decline. I'd strongly suggest that that requires some reappraisal. I mean, I, I remember hearing um, John Lennon being asked for a quote on Elvis's passing. He said, well, he'd been living, he'd be, it was a living death, he said. The army killed him, that's what killed him, right? I just yeah. don't agree with that. I mean, for a start, he could have deferred, or he could have gone into the army and done special service, as in an entertainer at USO shows, but he chose not to. He chose to go in as a grunt. Yeah. Yeah, and and as possibly kind of with with hindsight, with Vietnam, with Muhammad Ali, etc. I think we kind of maybe judge him harshly on that when it was a sort of different era. And I think it's quite a crass thing to have said on Lennon's part, actually. I think. Well, yeah. I think that, and we'll maybe get to this later, or maybe we should get to it now. There's a real difference between 
someone with oodles of empathy, which is Elvis, and that's what makes him such a great performer of other people's songs, and narcissists like Lennon, who can only see it from their own perspective. Right. Um, we were hoping to have an Elvis versus the Beatles podcast yeah. involving another colleague of ours, but so far the invitation has been declined. Uh, but we will be giving the, the Beatles like full treatment over several podcasts, I'm sure, in the future. But really interesting. And around the time that, that Elvis moved into the army, when he was still training at Fort Hood, it was, his mother died. So, And that was, for many of the reasons that we've already mentioned on the podcast, was obviously... A watershed moment as it is for most people but I think possibly even more extreme for Elvis I think that they, these two things are getting mixed up yeah. I think the psychological blow of losing his mother is much more significant than his time in the army yeah yeah they, he had a pet name for his mother it was Satin yeah that is not a normal pet name for you I mean I don't think you should have pet names for your mother but certainly not Satin they had to <laughs> restrain Elvis because when her body was laying out in state he couldn't leave her alone they had to put up a screen in the end. Yeah. I mean, he was absolutely undone. He put fresh flowers on her grave every week. Yeah. For the rest of his life. Yeah. Yeah, and he had a much closer relationship with his mother than he did with his father, didn't he? You know, I think something to do with feeling like the arrest and jailing when he was three years old and the effect on his mother thereafter never really left Elvis. He tolerated his father, but he didn't treat him like a father. He treated him like an employee. He gave him jobs. Yeah. His yeah. mum, he just gave whatever he could give her. Yeah. Everything that was uh, at his disposal, she had. Yeah. But his father, he was an employee. Yeah. So in Germany, quite a few things happened that had quite a big influence on Elvis and the rest of his life, really. And uh, any thoughts on particularly some of those? Well, three big things. So he yeah. met Priscilla. Yeah. Uh, who was the daughter of an army commanding officer that he knew, who was... Um, Underage at the time. Right, yeah, she was 14, I think. Yeah, she? that's right, mm-hmm. yeah. But they fell in love, and I think that Elvis, having lost the anchor of his mother, was basically looking for someone to replace her in, in his life. He learned karate. Yeah. However stupid that sounds, that was a massive part of Elvis's life. Yeah. Who was yep. increasingly on a, a spiritual journey of discovery, based around, in large part, that idea of, like, do I deserve what I've got? because he was still trying to come to terms as a very poor southern boy with this massive success and money. And the last, and perhaps even most important, was that this is where he got hooked on amphetamines. Yeah, yeah. And he started to live a very nocturnal life right? based around uppers and downers. Mm. And from now on, he could neither get up nor go to sleep without drugs. And that was something that I think right to the end was was omnipresent in his life. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to his his drug situation upon his death in the fifth yeah. moment of his life, but it can't be overlooked. Yeah. Well, after this break, we're going to be talking a bit more about two other pivotal moments in Elvis's life and a very, very different scene culturally that was behind them. Hello, welcome back. We've already talked about three major pivotal moments in Elvis Presley's life, his birth and his early upbringing in Tupelo, Mississippi, or East Tupelo, as I was corrected earlier on, the release of Heartbreak Hotel and his move to RCA in 1956 when he was 21, and the death of his mother and his time in the army, which kicked off at about 1958. So now we've got two more in our kind of five-point plan to look at Elvis Presley's life and legacy, and... It's a very famous TV show that was released in 1968 after a very, very quiet 
1960s in some ways for Elvis. I mean, do you want to talk a little bit first about what was going on in the 60s leading up to that that pivotal year? Yeah, he returned from Germany in 1960, very unsure about what he was going to return to, because I think the absolute zenith of his um, celebrity was 58, just prior to him leaving. Yeah. Kurt the Colonel wasn't stupid, as we've kind of established. He, was, he may well have been evil and manipulative, but he wasn't stupid. So he had Elvis cut a bunch of records before he went and then drip-fed them out during the interregnum so that Elvis never really went away. Elvis came back and recorded some of his best music in 1960 and 61, including the um, unequaled Reconsider Baby, which I think is one of his best uh, songs ever. And then he went to Hollywood... Uh, and then made a bunch of decreasingly good films. I mean, they are really quite awful. Yeah. Uh, e- even the biggest Elvis fan amongst us would, would struggle to see much in them that, that is worth pursuing uh, or listening to in terms of soundtrack albums. Yes, yeah. yeah. So Elvis has really lost his way. Around 66, 67, he's really... He, he's unhappy with the music he's making. He's unhappy with the choices he's made. Lisa Marie, his daughter of Priscilla, has been born. Priscilla has embarked upon a semi-public affair with her dancing instructor. Of course, yeah. yeah. Bobby Kennedy's just been assassinated, mm. and so has Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King assassinated, of course, in Memphis, which sent Elvis into a right tailspin of depression because he felt it, it kind of confirmed all of the worst things about the South yeah. and what people thought about the South. And so... In that moment, he was at his most frustrated and isolated. And this is when the colonel came up with an idea, which was an Elvis Christmas special. It would be Elvis on an empty stage singing Christmas songs for an hour on NBC for a million dollars. And when the NBC executive producer, this guy called Bob Finkel, uh, talked to the colonel about it and then to Elvis, Elvis was very clear. He said, uh, I want everyone to know what I can really do. And they started to change the plan towards what became known as the 68 Comeback Special. Yeah, yeah. And I think it has to be said at this time, you've got to remember the difference between 1958 and 1968 in terms of cultural history and pop music is just a chasm because in the intervening period, you've had the Beatles that we mentioned earlier, but you've had the Rolling Stones, you've had like the, the hippie era's got going, you've had the Beach Boys, Dylan. you've had Dylan. Just, a, I mean, Elvis at that time must have seemed like a remnant of a previous age, even at that time. That's a really good point, And actually that is some of the energy behind it because the, the kind of director-producer combo, this guy called Steve Binder and his producer Bones Howe, they were heartily unimpressed by Elvis. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so when he came in with his, with his ideas, they just went, no, how about this? And Elvis had a sort of... He had an incredible charisma, of course he did, but he was also inherently quite passive. Yeah. And they got him to the point where he was saying yes to everything they were pitching. And the colonel at this point had just said, I, I forget it, give, give me a Christmas single, I don't care. The rest of it, you get on with it. Yeah. I, you know, I'm not interested. Which kind of created once maybe the only time in the whole of Elvis's career a bit of room to manoeuvre and so these guys put together a show which is basically split into two parts one which is a sort of sort of quite uh, theatrical 
sort of live performance around medleys using the, the tune Guitar Man as a as a linchpin. And it's a number of big set pieces which basically tells a sort of story of a poor boy who finds fame and fortune and travels the world only to discover that true happiness waits for him at home. Yeah. So that's the sort of basic narrative. And then the um, second half is an informal, almost kind of improvised acoustic set with his old buddies from the Sundays... In a boxing ring. This is unplugged before unplugged exists. Yeah, I mean, I was I was struck, but having watched the video yesterday, I was struck by how much it reminded me of the whole kind of unplugged format, which in its turn must have been like seriously influenced by the whole thing. Sure, so, yeah, I yeah. mean, the unplugged set is incredible. This is Elvis in his black leather suit. I think he is the epitome and zenith of male beauty. I don't think he ever looked better. He still looks. A, a very young man, which of course he was, wasn't he? I was it thirty three, something mm-hmm. like that. You know, possibly not not uncoincidentally the same age as Jesus, but anyway, we won't go there. <laughs> and, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, he really does. I mean, you kind of get the impression that everything from the late sixties onwards was the kind of jumpsuited sort of you know chubby guy, but it's actually n- nothing of the sort, is it? It looks extremely kind of handsome, and you know. he is beautiful, yeah. and his sexuality is pouring out of him. Yeah, um, it, he, it deliberately or not. He does a number of things to get the audience on side. He pretends to forget lyrics and stuff. Yeah. But when he first reaches out to the mic, Rob, his hand is shaking. Yeah. The stakes are high for him. Yeah. Because yeah. if he doesn't pull this off, then it confirms to him his worst fears, which is that basically he's he's no longer relevant. Yeah. And doesn't he say oh, he quite likes the Beatles and the Birds and other but almost mispronounces the name the Birds. You yeah. Know? yeah. At the time, you know, this is the the time of kind of you know nineteen sixty eight. Not only kind of in terms of music but it's also like kind of a massive cultural time with like anti-vietnam protests kent state shootings which were a little bit later but you know it's like really you know, significant it's a different world from those 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 uh soda bars on the strip in tipolo isn't it it's like yeah it's, it's different yeah so but his performances are amazing and yeah. we'll put some on the uh the playlist but i wanted to pick out one in particular uh which is one night this is a, a great song from his you know sundays Elvis is seated. I mean, the the the, the boxing is incredibly packed. It, it, there's no room to manoeuvre, but he can't help it. He stands. In fact, at one point, he dis- he, he he disconnects his electric guitar. Yeah, because of, because he, he he's not got the room to manoeuvre to stand. But he unforgettably sings. I've always lived a very quiet life, and I never never done no wrong. That is a lyric, and he says it in such a way that it is impossible to imagine this man living anything other than a loud and wicked life. Yeah, I mean, it is extraordinary his vocal performance on this he sounds like a demon yeah yeah an absolute wild man yeah i also think it's interesting with the music at times i mean it sounds like he's taken a lot of the old you know one or two, well, a few of the 50 standards you know the songs that really made his name and then they the backing is sort of updated you know i think that's what's quite interesting in that kind of live music kind of cabaret sounding more mm-hmm like a kind of up-to-date thing because a lot of the early recordings and everything particularly the very early recordings the sun ones from the from 54 are, are quite grainy you know yeah. inevitably so so uh yeah i know it's 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 a real kind of vaudevillian kind of you know experience at times but you know great quality as well song after song that's that's top notch so you, really good you mentioned your kind of early memory of elvis's yeah. death and I talked in the Nirvana one about hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit for the first time and it being like a pretty mm. major moment. I would say the first time I saw the opening number, which is Elvis in a kind of white suit in front of his name mm. in massive red letters, quite a famous image. Yes. He sings Trouble, which is um, 
I'm evil, my middle name is Misery, I'm evil, don't you mess around with me. It's one of my favourite musical memories. When I saw that, I was so exhilarated by it, I just thought, who is this guy? Because I really did think of Elvis as a sort of jumpsuited, burger-chomping, died-on-the-toilet dude. And this guy is something else. I was going to ask you about your first exposure to Elvis. When, when, was and, that it? Yeah, or? that's it. Yeah, yeah. That's it. When I saw that image and I heard that vocal performance and I heard that song, which is so full of swagger and menace, I was totally blown away by it. I, I, I thought, well, who is this guy? And ever since then, I've been looking into it. Of course, the whole comeback special is an ambivalent thing. Tremendous as it was, it was quite bittersweet. And there's a feeling that, well, it's certainly more than a feeling. It's probably pure fact that he would never attain those heights again. And is that something that's sad for you, looking back on it and watching it again? Yeah, really sad. Yeah. And so in the boxing ring, he's reunited with Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana. So that's his course, guitarist yeah. and his, his drummer, respectively, from the Sundays. Uh, he never worked with them again. He never saw Scotty again in his life. <laughs> he never worked with Steve Binder or Bones Howe again, the director and producer. It bounced him into a, a short period of, of, of great creativity, his last great phase. So he bounced out of this and made him The Ghetto and Suspicious Minds, etc., some of his greatest music. And it kind of led up to 1972, which is when he recorded Aloha from Hawaii and, you know, simulcast to one and a half billion people. Right, yeah. But he was um, very much on a, a downward slope from here, I would say. Yes, yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly the case. Which brings us inevitably to possibly one of the most mythologised events in the whole history of Western culture, basically Elvis's death in 1977. Or is he, Rob? Well, there's the question, according to the Sunday sport, probably not, <laughs> um, along with the Second World War air, aircraft found on the moon. <laughs> but, uh, well, assuming, and it's a big assumption, that Elvis is dead, Garalnik's described it as not a decline you know, and this is the period leading up to his death which is well mythologised to the extreme he described it, Groundix described it as not a decline but a vanishing and do you want to kind of expound on that? Well I think that's a beautiful description yeah. and that's said by someone who loves Elvis very much Yeah. Um, but he'd lost his way mm. he, he said quite openly in some of his last press conferences I'm tired of being Elvis mm. he didn't look like himself, he didn't sound like himself he didn't feel like himself no I think of uh, James Joyce's favourite image of Odysseus is of Odysseus collapsed on the beach from exhaustion at the end of his journey. And mm. I kind of think of Elvis as a sort of noble but tragic figure uh, who had washed up on the beach exhausted. The, the circumstances of his death are as follows. He went to the bathroom around six in the morning witnessed by his girlfriend Ginger, but he wasn't discovered dead until 2pm that day. Mm. So he lay there alone for eight hours, yeah. face down in the pool of his own vomit. Right. Some allege that Ginger, the girlfriend, then made two phone calls on finding his stricken body, one to her mother and one to the National Enquirer, mm. which is a sad but fact about Elvis and his mm. celebrity. It is worth saying that it's sort of grimly fun. The whole thing is grimly funny. Yeah. That later a National Enquirer photographer broke into the morgue and lay there under a sheet until Elvis was pushed in and then he popped up from under the sheet and took a picture oh, of the dear. corpse. Yeah. Right? yeah. Elvis had been suffering from chronic colon problems for years, mm. something I didn't really know. I'd been having barium enemas. I don't know if you know much about barium enemas, but they are incredibly unpleasant. I can well imagine. Yeah. Um, and also, if they're not properly flushed out, they solidify like cement in the bowel. 
which is what happened to Elvis. Mm. But anyway, leading up to this, he'd been complaining of toothache and his dentist prescribed codeine, a drug with which he was unfamiliar. Uh, and he had 10 times the the kind of recommended dose in his bloodstream or that that wouldn't have been fatal on its own. It is worth saying, Rob, and I hope you're sitting down for this, that Robert surrounded himself with a number of uh, yes men, including a doctor called Dr. Nick. Yeah. Dr. Nick wrote 19,012 prescriptions for Elvis yeah. between 1975 and August 1977. My word. Yeah. You know, two, two and a half mm. years, 19,000 prescriptions. There were 14 different drugs in his system, including the codeine. The autopsy and toxicology reports are sealed for mm. another 10 years yet, so until 2027. So we don't quite know. Right. Yeah. But he did not die on the toilet. No. It, no. Was, it was said that it was a heart attack, but I think it was a heart attack... From complications to due of basically a drug overdose. Yeah. Mm. But there is another theory which I came across, which is reasonably interesting, which is that during the filming of Clambake, mm. <laughs> a little known film in 1967, <laughs> Elvis tripped and fell against a porcelain bathtub and knocked himself unconscious. Right. He was hospitalised, actually. Mm. And the working hypothesis from some is that he suffered a traumatic brain injury, a TBI, the thing that American football players are now trying to pursue as a uh, as a kind of class action yeah, lawsuit yeah. against. Mm. It's basically a massive brain trauma where a piece of the brain leaks into the bloodstream, causing a number of disorders downstream, mm. including the breakdown of other organs, chronic pain, obesity, enlarged heart and bowels, yeah. all of which Elvis's autopsy confirmed he had. So it might have been that. In fact, in a sort of elegant and poetic sort of turning a full circle, there is a theory that he died of the issues which killed his identical twin brother. It's just that it took it this long to kill him. Really? That's and incredible. He, and he was born of congenital issues in his heart and bowels mm. that killed Jesse and ended up killing him. I mean, a cynic would say maybe sort of, you know, five burgers in a meal and, and you know, all the prescription drugs that you just mentioned you know, obviously would have had a contributory factor as well. But of course, you know, like, you know, these are very interesting facts that kind of add to the, the kind of speculation. Now, Elvis, recently there was a really interesting article in The Guardian about the market for Elvis memorabilia uh, falling through the floor. And <laughs> as Elvis's most committed fans have passed on themselves 40 years later. So in terms of the legacy... Obviously, at the time, like I said, when I heard about the death, it was just wall-to-wall coverage for several weeks. And I remember a year later as well, weirdly enough, I remember in 1978, you know, there was a lot of coverage of it being the anniversary. And, you know, pretty consistently for quite a long time now, Elvis is still regarded, I think, you know, up there with the Beatles as probably like the two main sort of artists in the history of pop and rock music. And I think there would be very few people who would deny his inventing pop music as we know it or white pop music as we know it. But... Is that legacy beginning to sort of slightly disappear? And what, and what about his legacy in general? I mean, what are your thoughts? Yeah, yeah I'd be concerned as an Elvis fan. Yeah. That that article was pretty devastating. It was some sort of perfect storm of these elderly people passing away and their memorabilia flooding an indifferent market where there isn't another generation, it doesn't seem, of Elvis enthusiasts coming through uh, and rediscovering him. The way yeah. that every artist needs to be rediscovered and claimed by each subsequent generation, in the way that the Beatles have, have had their doldrums, right? Yeah. And it was really as recently as Britpop to kind of put them back on the map a bit, and yeah. that triggered things like the anthologies and whatever. 
Yeah, I mean, your typical image of an Elvis fan now, I guess, would be kind of a, a guy with brill cream back, grey hair, sort of sat wearing a kind of old suit and a kind of slightly kind of yellowy grey shirt, probably yeah. down the bookies, probably with a fag, probably, you know, looking at the paper and yeah. thinking back to his days at the dance halls in the, the kind of, you know, 60s, 70s and 80s. So there aren't too many of them about anymore, really, are there? Yeah, and I think you touched on something interesting, which was that kind of false dichotomy between the performer and the singer-songwriter. Yes, yeah. And the idea that because Elvis didn't write his songs, he's somewhat less legitimate than someone like Dylan or, yeah. or the Beatles that we've mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just can't help but remind people that Elvis, having not written any of his songs recorded songs that are now regarded indelibly as Elvis songs. Yeah, yeah. His performances and his arrangements completely changed them and made them into something else. And like I said, like I think of Elvis as this great empathetic person who was able to completely inhabit the song when he was recording it and make it his own. Yeah. And that was his gift. You couldn't have given those... I mean, in fact, John Lennon recorded an album of rock and roll covers during the 70s. It was fucking awful. <laughs> the, guy, the guy, you know, he was great at writing his own songs. Let, let us remember what he was recording between 77 and 80. It was a bunch of garbage. Yeah. He could not have done the things that Elvis did. It was an act of great empathy and generosity, each one of his recordings. Yeah. I mean, the thing is that especially towards the end when he was feeling a bit sorry for himself, he went from being dramatic, when that's the kind of the, the performance of Trouble that kicks off 68 Comeback Special, to melodramatic, singing vastly overblown versions of Bridge Over Troubled Water. I mean, it's yeah. preposterous. In the same way that um, sentimentality, which drives some of his greatest tunes, like Long Black Limousine, goes over into mawkishness and Mama Like the Roses and stuff. And you could definitely curate a list of pretty risible Elvis performances mm. but you could also and more importantly put together a list of 50 60 100 tracks from this guy all of which individually and cumulatively are mind-blowing well while we wait for our third guest Yoko Ono to show up <laughs> I would say that we have actually or Ben Woolhead who's a regular on the podcast and was involved in the first 12 or 13 episodes and also the most recent Cardiff one he is actually busy at this moment, we hope, amassing a, a, a good playlist of Elvis tracks and uh, that will be up for your delectation on the internet soon. And just before we move on from Elvis and start talking about Arcade Fire after the break, I, I mean, there's a concept that you've, you've identified which is interesting and might be quite appropriate for Elvis and that, that was coined by Jacques Derrida, the, the French kind of post-structuralist philosopher, and that's the concept of hauntology. Do you want to explain that? Yeah, Derrida kind of uh, defines this concept as the figure of a ghost which is neither present nor absent, neither dead nor alive. And we joked about that kind of Elvis is dead, Elvis sighted, sort of kind of the onion sort of headline. Mm. But Elvis is entirely present in our culture whilst being simultaneously not very present, either physically or in terms of what who sounds like Elvis now sort of thing. Yeah. As well as that idea that the moment he died, people started seeing him. He is literally a ghost. Yeah. If you think about great artists, you think about their precedents and antecedents. There is very little or nothing before Elvis, according to John Lennon once upon a time. Mm. And then there is everyone afterwards. Yeah. And before anyone did anything, Elvis did everything. Yeah. I kind of think that Elvis haunts pretty much everyone one way or the other. Yeah. And in that way, and that way alone, he's worth remembering and discussing. 
he's omnipresent in the culture, isn't he? I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, I don't think there can be many people, even very young people who've never heard of him. I mean, he's, he's, he's still, for all we've said about the decline in his popularity, and that might continue, I still think he's most people would know he's a significant mm-hmm. presence. So really interesting indeed. That was a great discussion about Elvis. And I think there's probably more we could touch on and we might well return to the topic at some point and certainly to rock and roll as well, which I think is another really interesting topic to discuss. After this break, we're going to be talking about everything now, the new Arcade Fire album. Welcome back. And after devoting the last sort of 40, 45 minutes to Elvis Presley, we're going to sort of change tune quite dramatically, actually, and in time honoured fashion, appraise an album of the month. And this is going to be an interesting discussion, I think. We might spend slightly longer on it than we have various other albums earlier this year, because it is the much talked about, not least on our Twitter feed, new album, fifth album by Arcade Fire, uh, Everything Now. And uh, David, I just wanted to get your take, first of all, on your attitude towards Arcade Fire in the past before this album. Yeah, I really like their first album, and like yeah. I think I've stated elsewhere that I'm a big fan of David Bowie, and he was a big fan of Arcade Fire, wasn't he? Mm. And they even appeared together. I think he or... might have involved himself in the production of some of the mm-hmm. some of the music. Yeah. They covered Five Years and stuff. Like yeah. early on, they were they were really interesting bands, and I think even I could tolerate Neon Bible, the second album, in a way that maybe even you were starting to draw the line. Yeah, it was, but I would say I, I actually like albums three and four okay. quite a lot. I think Neon Bible up till this point was the low point for me. I mean, it's fine, but I think like, you know, they, they you know, I did like three and four and I think even Reflector, which actually just does foreshadow this, this new album a little bit. I, I personally actually really like that. But, but anyway, yeah. Yeah, so. I, quite, I quite like their sound. I thought that I could tolerate their sort of slightly heavy-handed portentousness and self-importance yeah because I thought they had the songs I certainly had the songs I mean the first album for me was just a real highlight of that decade for Mm -hmm. me I thought it was a brilliant album the first song Neighbourhood Number One Tunnels still a classic Mm -hmm. still probably might even be for me a uh, and in uh, a song that could get into my desert island discs, you know, wow. say that, yeah, that's no, really, really, really sort of struck me at that time. I think it was at a point in the life where that that was the kind of music I wanted, that kind of Sturm und Drang, yeah, yeah, kind of approach. Lots of inventiveness. I saw them live at the Astoria on Charing Cross Road, and I, it was just still one of the best gigs Great I've ever been to. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. So, uh, so you know, I always come into listening to new stuff positively, but David thoughts on the album well as ever like i'm not a music journalist neither am i a musician so who the hell am i yeah. i hated this album i thought it was awful right. and like the thing is that it's some context then i only basically listen to hip-hop i think i've said elsewhere that really i feel like guitar music has sort of let me down yeah for, for a number of years maybe even decades yeah that i find it all rather insipid and um, underwhelming. And this is from the man who was the cornerstone of our Nirvana podcast, of course. Yeah, quite right, yeah. So you Um, do like guitar music. Yeah, absolutely, and I grew up on it. And like I said, the first couple of RK Firearms, I I really enjoyed and I listened to a lot. Mm. But yeah, I listen to a lot of hip-hop now, and then, of course, being kind of up to my eyeballs in Elvis, preparing for this. And then you hear this. Yeah. And um, there's a quote about the Godfather in Family Guy, of all things. Right. Um, which is that they're just about to die. I think they're like the kind of the, the family is about to drown, and like so, it's one of those classic scenarios where the water level is rising towards the ceiling. Yeah. And the father says, "I've got something to get off my chest," 
and I, but I need to tell you now just before we die and they go what is it what is it and he barely get his words out and he says I don't like The Godfather they go I don't like The Godfather The Godfather's one of the most amazing films of all time he's the only person who's ever said I don't like The Godfather why don't you like The Godfather and he goes it's because it insists upon itself yeah and I think that is a classic and beautiful description of arcade late arcade fire this album insists upon itself which is interesting because I'm not sure I'm going to get the whole detail right, but this was quite famously this album prefaced by a faux marketing campaign where they, you know, all the all the songs on the record sleeve are, are sort of done up like logos for f- fake companies. They had a kind of fake Twitter feed or a fake kind of, you know, PR feed saying various things about the album, trying to second guess what the reviews would be. You know, we're saying, oh, it would be initially not very well received and later on it will be one of the albums of the year and all this kind of meta stuff, which is sort of part of a critique, I guess, of consumerism and cultural life as in this internet age. But unfortunately, it's just ludicrously heavy-handed. I, mean, I that, think also, like, yeah. I, I would have... I'm going to roll my eyes at that. Yeah. But I would have no strong opinion of that if they brought the songs and they didn't. No, no. I, I mean, yeah, what, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, I don't... I mean, the, 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 your opinion is has been very seriously echoed in lots of places, including The Quietus, which absolutely ripped it to shreds. Uh, but as I think discussed on our Twitter feed recently, they also ripped the public service broadcasting album to shreds which i think is a complete misstep because i think it's a really good album so this one there has been a lot of criticism a lot of negative reviews a lot of them have been you know really vitriolic actually which i think is the pomposity like you say i think they've taken the starting off point of the songs thought they were rubbish and then thought right this faux marketing campaign needed it kicking in the guts as well i think some of it it ranges from awful to good And and i think like a couple of tracks Peter Pan, which is a kind of faux white reggae type pile of nonsense, and the two songs Infinite Content and Infinitely Content, which is a kind of, you know, very heavy handed kind of pun, they're not very good. And I can't remember the name of the other one I don't like, but it's also in the middle of the album. But it gets a bit better towards the end, and also I think importantly, Wynn Butler, the singer, really needs to move aside and let Regine Chassagne, his wife, yeah. do more. Totally because agree. she's always been excellent. Yeah. Like, the tracks that she's involved in on Funeral, the first album, are really, really good. And this is a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a trend I think you'll see a lot uh, across a lot of bands which have male and female partnerships that, that the females are... I'd say Bell and Sebastian, another one where they don't let the female singer sing enough. And I think it's just... You know, I think I think you know she she the songs that she's on are better, and I think there's a couple of songs at the end which are pretty good, and I think they kind of stand up to some of their best material. I don't mind the kind of ABBA sounding sort of big early singles either. I think they're fine, but just it's that middle portion of the album where it just sinks like a sinkhole, you know, and like just becomes almost unlistenable, you know. So so I'm not. I, for me, it's a kind of five out of ten album. I don't think it's a kind of one out of ten album. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, like I, I look at my notes here. The title track is people blowing into milk bottles and a fake crowd singing na na na. Yeah. Which you can't deny, that's exactly what happens. Yeah. <laughs> and the milk bottle blowing goes on for way too long. One second is too Underrated long. skill, that, though. I'm sure. Said, I'm, yeah. But um, I don't know if I'd... You know, uh, anyway. Should we get yours out now? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, there are some risible lyrics, too. Like, on the second track, he sings... So you've got a male and female singer to choose from. You get the male singer to sing, some girls hate their bodies, some girls cut themselves. 
Yeah. I think this is a bizarre decision to tread into this territory full stop. Yeah. Especially from a man. Yeah. What yeah. the fuck does he know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say, I would agree with you completely. It's actually chemistry that's reggae inflected. Oh, it's terrible, yeah. And then yeah. there's that infinite content thing. I mean, I mean, everything's going to sound better because that is, that is the sound of the barrel being scraped. Yeah. I thought that was... The low musical low point in 2017 for me. Right. I couldn't believe yeah. what I was hearing. Yeah. But then thereafter, the regime-led Electric Blue is really kind of mid-period. That reminded blondie. me a bit of MGMT as well, yeah. you know. Sort of Great song. Yeah, yeah. And um, that Put Your Money On Me, at its best, sounds a little bit like a minor work from ABBA. Yeah, I'm like, That's a compliment for me because yeah. I love ABBA. Yeah, yeah. But then I just don't know. I suppose it's a bit like having a drill sergeant shout at you. Like, have I been broken down to such an extent that... Yeah. I'm being rebuilt to accept that these tracks, which are probably fair to middling, sound a lot better than they do because I've just waded through a bunch of sludge. Yeah, I mean, a wider wider question for you, though, which, I mean, I hope, hopefully I can't... I won't be too garbled in making my point here, and a lot of my friends will know this argument on my part as I'm down the pub. I mean, critiques of social media and its alienating qualities of consumerism, of, of these kinds of things obviously run the risk of being obvious but I know that Oliver Stone's a film director that a lot of people complain about because his work is deemed to be obvious or preaching to the converted but the thing is lots of the things he complains about and he rails against are still outrages and still continue to happen and it's like despite social media being alienating and consumerism taking over people will rail against them in the most obvious way, but they still continue to happen. So, you know, aren't you damned if you do and damned if you don't? I mean, you and I are both fans of Dave Egger's novel, The Circle, which I think very elegantly skewers a lot of these things. Is it just, do you think it could have been done in a way that was less heavy-handed, that was like, you know, sort of just more subtle? I don't think there's a way of being more heavy-handed. I don't think there is a heavier (laughs) hand in the world. Also, I don't give a shit about the opinions of a bunch of millionaire French Canadians in what, their 40s? Uh, not sure, probably still in the 30s, I would say, but I don't know, I might be wrong. Like, mm. I just don't really care what yeah. you think, pal. Yeah, like, I think Wim Butler's actually an American, but, you know, but, by but, birth. But, but yeah. like, um, okay, t- I take your point, but, but basically millionaire people moaning about first world problems. Yeah. Like, if it was the alienating effects of technology on the lives of a, an 18 year old who'd grown up in this era um for which this social media is ubiquitous uh and they are having to with no rule book available to them navigate this whole new technological environment and the best things about that and the alienating things about that a oh, man i'll listen to that yeah I'd, I'd certainly be interested to hear what they had to say these m- millionaire successful musicians you know, in the most portentous and pretentious way possible, taking on those big themes. It makes me more annoyed, not less. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly bombastic. Lots and lots of interesting stuff on the internet. I would I would point you in the direction of Alexis Petridis's Guardian review of it, which I think is quite a good balance review and certainly points out the, the weaknesses and, and generally isn't that enthusiastic, but isn't perhaps quite as vitriolic as the quietest one and our own ben has pointed people to various reviews 
of this album and also tweeted on it in, in his blog, which is Silent Words Speak Loudest, which we should do more to kind of publicise really because it's become a little bit of a companion piece to the, to the, to the podcast. Anyway, thanks very much for your contribution, David. As, as always, a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Rob. Um, still working out a theme for next month, but I'm also hoping for the second in our interview series, which should go live probably quite early in September, depending on when you're listening to this. Basically, the best way of getting in touch with us is at SoundingBoard69 on Twitter. That's where almost everyone's interacting with us. And also, I think you should definitely take time to look down on the people we're following because there's lots and lots of good people there, lots of good blogs and podcasts and, and also musicians from all around the UK and elsewhere. So thanks very much again, David. Uh, looking forward to, to talking next time.